Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nussbaumer Neffler. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in. So I'm going to get a little personal to kick us off today. Actually, I'll start with a bit of trivia. You may know this, but my husband, Randy, and I both worked at Google. I worked at headquarters in Mountain View, and he was based in Zurich, Switzerland. That's actually where we met. We did the very romantic, long-distance thing for a while. I had some lovely meetups in various European cities. Uh, But now I'm probably getting a little too personal. So we both worked at Google. And one thing that Randy and I each experienced there, it's like a religion really, is the quarterly goal-setting process, OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. I actually attribute a huge part of Storytelling with Data's success to this, which I'll talk about more soon. And perhaps surprisingly, I'd say OKRs have contributed to my marital success as well. It was relatively early on. I actually don't remember when. I was for sure already setting them on the business side. But where Randy had the idea, the suggestion, that we set OKRs as a couple. Personal OKRs, if you will. Now, this might seem a little strange. It actually probably is a little strange, but it's also been amazing. We sit down together. This is usually after dinner, dishes are done, kids are in bed, generally with a glass of wine in hand, and we set our goals for the quarter. And maybe even stranger than that, at the end of each quarter, we sit down again and discuss and grade ourselves on how well or poorly we achieved each of our stated objectives. And that's actually an equally important part of the process as setting goals in the first place, right? This idea of coming back and reflecting to say, well, did we actually accomplish what we set out to do? I'll be honest, while I super consistently set OKRs on the business side, we sort of fall into and out of the habit on the personal front. We haven't always been consistent. Though stepping back, I feel comfortable saying that we've been more in sync, uh, perhaps even happier when we've gone through this process regularly together. There's something about setting, actually articulating, agreeing on, and writing down common goals that, for me at least, helps me to make my actions more intentional. There's, I'm sure, also something about the accountability aspect, both that I know someone else in the picture who's expecting I do what I said I do, as well as accountability to myself, because I know we'll sit down at the end of the quarter and grade ourselves. And I'm a perfectionist. I want good grades. Our OKRs have run the gamut over time from things at home, like how often Randy will assume dinner cooking responsibilities, to stuff with our kids, like making sure all three of them get to the dentist for a cleaning, or one that was amusing as I was scanning through some past ones, Randy sings and plays Somewhere Over the Rainbow on the ukulele for Avery. It's one from the archives when Avery was a baby. Uh, He achieved it, by the way. To stuff with us as partners, like how many date nights we'll have. Or let's just say some more personal stuff that I won't get into. 
But there's something about this process that, as I mentioned, it, it helps us be more intentional in our actions, helps get us in sync so that we're working towards and, and hopefully achieving common goals. It's a new year, right? 2019 just started. And this is the time of year when people often set resolutions. I don't like resolutions. You resolve to do something. I'm going to lose 20 pounds or take up golf. I don't know. But rarely is much thought given to how beyond joining the gym or the club. And even rarer, does anyone ever check back in a reasonable time frame to assess, did I do it? And rate their success. And that's why I love the OKR process so much. These latter pieces are built in. So today, we're going to talk about OKRs. OKRs. What are they? So I mentioned this earlier, but OKR stands for Objectives and Key Results. So they're made up of two components, really. Your objective, which is the goal. This is what you want to accomplish. And it should be significant and communicate action. And then the second component are the key results. So these are how you'll accomplish your stated objective. And these should be aggressive, but realistic. It's very important that they be measurable because at the end of the quarter, you're going to come back and actually assess whether or to what extent you completed each. We'll talk about this more momentarily. Oftentimes, there is some sort of time component included. This may be a deadline or a certain frequency with which you're going to do something. And then they're limited in number. You typically will only have two or three key results that are supporting a given objective. And the objectives themselves are also limited, where you'll have somewhere on the order of three to five objectives typically for a given quarter. There's a great Google Ventures video describing OKRs that I'll make sure we link to in the show notes. But let's talk through an example. So an example OKR for me this quarter, I'm going to be taking my first trip to Australia and New Zealand. This will be my first time doing work there. So I might have an objective around regionally targeting some business development. Could be something simple like grow storytelling with data business in Australia and New Zealand, right? I want to make sure I have a successful expansion there. And then my key results could be something like register at least 30 people in each of the three workshops by the middle of January. Uh, by the way, if you're in Australia, New Zealand, or the South Pacific, you can help me achieve this key result uh, by signing up today. Storytellingwithdata.com slash public dash workshops. Another key result could be to book work with two local clients for the trip. Or I might have one present in three forums to share storytelling with data with the broader community and create future potential interest. These would be things like meetups or Tableau user groups or university guest lectures. And then at the end of the quarter, I can look back and assess to what extent did I accomplish each of these key results. And then together I can say, well, if I accomplished my key results, then the objective has been met or figure out to what extent it has been met. And then that helps me both assess progress, right? To see, am I doing the things I set out to do, but then also helps me plan for the future. 
Now, if you're working with others, it can sometimes make sense or often make sense, I should say, to have common objectives where you might share and multiple individuals have the same objective, but potentially different key results for accomplishing that objective. So if I take another Storytelling with Data example, uh, Elizabeth is on the team here at Storytelling with Data. If we look back in time, uh, you know, at one point we were trying to get comfortable, both her and me, uh, with her presenting trainings and workshops to client organizations. And so at one point we had an OKR or an objective that said Cole and Elizabeth each agree that Elizabeth is ready to present on her own to clients in the given quarter. And then we each had different key results that would help us individually, but also together, as it makes sense, to meet that objective. And one thing that's been interesting for me over time in the way that I use OKRs, like right? so you think about setting goals of things you want to accomplish in a positive way. Uh, I've also sort of used them in a negative way. I mean, that's not quite the right wording. But you know, something that has been a constant struggle for me historically, and uh, you know, this is maybe the case for anyone who owns or operates a business, but you, there's this desire to want to say yes to everything, right? Because you never know when things will change. And, and so there's a desire to want to, uh, uh, what is the saying, like bird in hand, uh, right? You want to uh, take advantage of that. But you can't actually do that if you want to be successful because you need to be focused and say no to a ton of things so that you can be focused. So one way personally that I found OKRs to be really effective is to set OKRs about things I'm not going to do. So historically, I've had OKRs around things like no more than X trips in a given quarter or no more than Y consecutive nights away because there's this desire when the inquiry comes in to want to figure out how to make it work, right? Well, I'm going to be in New York, so I could squeeze in one more thing. But when I know that I'm going to grade this objective at the end of the quarter that I have that says don't book any more than you know a certain amount, then it's easy for me to say no, because I know that means that I'm actually helping myself achieve a goal when I do that. So I've mentioned grading, but this is a super important aspect of the overall process where at the beginning of the quarter, and this is usually, you know, in the first week or two of the quarter, you set your OKRs for the quarter. Often get feedback from someone else, a manager, or, um, you know, Randy, since he's familiar with the process, he, he's my accountability check. He's the one who gives me feedback to say, no, that's not aggressive enough, or that's not really measurable. Can you refine that? And then at the end of each quarter, you grade your OKRs. And this is going back to those key results and assessing. So I use a score uh, on a 0 to 10 scale, where 0 means no progress at all. Right? And this happens sometimes. Maybe you reprioritize or miss something. And then 10 is you accomplished what you set out to do to the fullest, right? 100%. And then you can have scores in between that as well, which is often the case. And so you assign a score for each of the key results, and then you average those to get the overall score for your objective. And then if you want a summary for the quarter, you can average, typically don't recommend averaging averages, but in this case, I think it's probably okay as a signal <laughs> to average um, the objective scores to get an overall uh, numeric for the quarter. 
And for me, the actual number doesn't matter so much. Um, and I'm pretty aggressive in how I set my goals. Uh, so my overalls tend to be in the six to eight point range. But it's it's a useful, less of a useful data point, but more of a useful process, right? Again, this idea of not only setting out to do something, but then reflecting and learning from that process. So for example, I'll, you know, I'll typically have a few places that uh, where I score zero. And then I want to pause and reflect and say, well, did priorities change on purpose? Or did I actually just not do or devote time or make a priority something that I actually probably should have done? So then that changes how I think about it for the next quarter. And getting feedback is important as well, right? Somebody else to help you really be true in your assessment. Uh, and I mentioned for me, that's Randy because he's accessible. He knows the process. He knows the business. And so he can read through and say, you know, yeah, that makes sense to me. Or oftentimes he'll challenge me. Um, oftentimes the places he challenges me are actually, you know, hey, you're being too hard on yourself here. Bump that up a little bit. Really, you did achieve that. But we have some really good conversations that I think are useful for sure as part of the process as well. When it comes to cadence, so quarterly was what I did when it when I was at Google. I think the performance process there is moved to semi-annually in some cases. I'm not sure if the OKR process has followed that or if it's still consistently quarterly across the organization. But for my business, quarterly feels like the right cadence. Right? It's sort of long enough that you can accomplish meaty things, but short enough so that if you go off track or aren't prioritizing in the right way, you get relatively quick feedback on that you know, when it comes to the reflective piece, especially for businesses that are changing. I think quarterly is a good cadence, though I have found over time, I think early on, this wouldn't maybe have even made sense because I wasn't able to step back and think farther out. But over time, I found it useful to also have a bigger goal setting process where near the end of each year, I'll step back and do strategic planning for the coming year. So I just did this process for 2019, where I got really specific in terms of numeric targets for 2019, main areas of focus, to be clear on those. And then the OKRs can break some of those main areas of focus into sub-pieces that can be accomplished within a given quarter. So these two dovetail quite nicely. So I think the overall message here is really thinking about how you can use goals to be intentional in the way you work. Um, I've had good success and highly recommend this quarterly OKR setting process and grading process that I've talked about. Um, but I think it's worthwhile to consider how can you use goals to be more intentional in all aspects of your work, right? You could think about setting goals for a given project at the onset. You know, maybe it's a goal around having fewer iterations or incorporating storyboarding into your planning process or working with someone new or avoiding filler words when you present. Or maybe even for a given graph, you have goals that you set and articulate and assess. This could be things like, you know, I want my graph to be so accessible that we don't spend time raising and asking questions about the graph. Rather, me and my audience were able to jump straight into the data and talk about what can we learn from it or what actions can we take on it. 
Or maybe there's a goal around being strategic in how you use color to direct attention. Or perhaps you have a goal around using a new tool. And actually, on that note, the current Storytelling with Data challenge focuses on doing just that, using a tool that is unfamiliar to you. That challenge runs through the 15th of January, 2019. And you can find more information at storytellingwithdata.com slash SWD challenge. So no matter how you're setting goals, I recommend step back and be specific in the steps that you'll take to accomplish them. Consider what does success look like, right? How you actually measure to what extent you've accomplished the goals that you've set. Who is going to help hold you accountable? And finally, when and how are you going to assess? And in this way, you can use goals as a way to push yourself forward and be intentional in the way that you work. Next, let's shift to listener Q&A. Gemma writes, hi, Cole, I'm loving your book and the podcast. Thank you. I look after the analytics team in a small business, and we're working to improve our data visualizations, learning from your examples and recommendations. The way we work is our team develop the data aspects of the presentation, and we know the story, but this is usually presented to clients by a colleague in the client relationships team. How would you recommend we bridge this gap if we're not the storyteller in the live presentation? Awesome question. And yes, this definitely complicates the challenge when you are preparing data stories that someone else will present. This means your audience is actually twofold, right? Those who are presenting your work and the audience to whom they are in turn presenting. So I'd say in these cases, it is especially important to use color sparingly and words wisely color sparingly to help direct the eventual audience's attention to where to look, and words written physically on the document making it clear why you want them to look there. That way there's no confusion, either by your immediate audience of the client relationship team or of the eventual audience to whom they are presenting. Now, if you're using any sort of slideware, PowerPoint, Keynote, Prezi, you can make use of the notes area. Use this for additional support for those who will be presenting to make the point or the takeaway clear, though hopefully the slide does this already. Add context or use it to answer questions that may arise. This helps ensure that the person who's presenting is fully prepared and they have all the info, but it doesn't have to be on the slide directly. I also highly recommend, if at all possible, getting together with the person or the people who will be presenting the material you develop, both before and after that presentation. You want to do it before so that you're on the same page as to what's important, uh, relevant context they may need, answers to anticipated questions, and then afterwards to debrief on what worked and what didn't so that everyone can continue to refine for next time. I know this isn't always possible, but if it is, it can be super valuable for everybody involved. Michael writes, Hi Cole, thank you for all the great resources. I'm currently working my way through your podcast, blog, and book all in tandem. I'm interested in what tips you have for consumers of graphs and visuals as opposed to creators. I work mainly with teachers and school leaders who have a wide range of comfort working with and interpreting data. 
One of my goals is to increase data literacy and comfort across the schools where I work. Especially as I begin my new role, I am conscious of what data visualizations people have been exposed to, mainly bar charts and pies from the state. I know part of my job is to make the information as easily interpretable as possible for my audience. But do you have any suggestions on effective resources to pass along, or should my focus be on conducting training and workshops? This is an awesome question, and it's a challenging one. I've honestly not thought a ton specifically about resources for increasing graphical literacy, but agree this is absolutely something that we can and should do. Uh, Elijah Meeks touched on this in the series he published on Medium about what charts do, though that's probably more of interest to you than to your audience, Michael. Uh, Alberto Cairo's upcoming book will be a great resource both for you and for your audience. It's meant primarily for the consumers of data visual. I believe that's planned to be released in the third quarter of this year. Uh, I just did a quick scan of my bookshelves, but what's there is definitely more useful for creators than consumers. So stepping back, I do think your strategy of sticking with what is known is a good one. Uh, sometimes it can actually be useful to start there and then pivot from something familiar, right? Grounding people in what they know into something less familiar, assuming there's uh, adequate value in doing so. So basically you set the foundation for them, get everybody on the same page, and then bring them along with you to the new view. Also, I think especially in the scenario where you have people who have different levels of familiarity and comfort with data and graphs, that the so what and story become really important. If these pieces are clear, the graphs become more like the backup rather than center stage. So for any graph you show, think about First off, where you want your audience to look and take intentional steps to highlight and focus attention there. Uh, but even more importantly, what you want them to take away and put that into words. This can make even a difficult or unfamiliar graph feel less intimidating. Paul writes, I'm reading through your book, Storytelling with Data, and on page 18 of the Kindle book, it says that I can download the Excel file examples from your website. I've looked on the site and can't find the files. Could you please point me to the right location? All right, this is an easy one. All of the Excel files with data and graphs from the book can be accessed and downloaded at storytellingwithdata.com slash book slash downloads. I welcome you to use these files to learn or teach uh, with proper attribution, and you'll find that detail when you follow the link, which I'll make sure we put in our show notes. Jen from Notre Dame writes with two questions. First, my students just turned in a data viz redesign and several of them are flipping the X and Y axes to have time, years and decades, on the Y axis. I've always thought the time, which in this case is ordinal and conventionally on the X axis, and we read left to right, so this makes more intuitive sense. Further, when you have two variables where they are related, in this case years and public and private school enrollment, the result is that one is dependent on the other. So the dependent variable goes on the y-axis and the independent on the x-axis. Since we are controlling time here, it's the independent variable and thus goes on the x-axis. Am I right? Anything I'm missing? What exceptions are there where time would be presented vertically? That just seems strange to me. Thanks for your question, Jen. And yes, you are absolutely right. The time is more intuitive on the x-axis, going from left to right. Turns out that we, in Western cultures, have a pretty strong built-in construct for this. We can actually make it easier for our audience by orienting the data this way, which sounds like it's what you were recommending. This makes sense. 
That said, it's definitely not a hard and fast rule, and there will be exceptions. For example, let's say you work at a company that runs an employee survey each year, and you're reporting the data. You want to focus on the latest year's numbers, but want a few past years there for comparison. Let's say we want our audience to see the latest year's data first. We wouldn't want time running backwards, right? If you started with the latest year's data and then going backwards in time as we move from left to right, that feels super confusing. So moving time to the y-axis could actually be a good solution here because of the way it would break us out of the time moves left to right expectation. So with horizontal bars, for example, we could have the latest year's data at the top and then historical data following. So you're moving backwards in time as you go from top to bottom. Or I can imagine a similar setup with a dot plot. All right, Jen's second question is, one thing that my students have a hard time with is humanizing the data. They aren't really sure what that means, how to do it, other than ask, what does this mean for people? And when I talk about Duarte's work and Resonate, the hero's journey, and a likable main character who experiences conflict, they think it sounds silly for business presentations. My finance MBAs really hate it and say there's no place in their world for that fluffy stuff. They're tough. Any words of wisdom? So I find this super interesting on the humanizing data piece. And I used to encounter this a ton. The sentiment that communications are soft skills that technical people shouldn't bother with. I'd say in the business world, at least, that view is shifting. It's becoming clear that you can have amazing technical skills, but if you can't then communicate effectively to somebody who doesn't work from that same skill set, you fail. Your work might be awesome, but if you can't communicate it clearly, then all of that work is for nothing. In my workshops, I'll often use a personal story to illustrate. I tell it early on when I compare story to a list of facts on a slide. Later in the day, right after we've covered other stuff, people don't remember any of the facts, but they're able to recall these super specific details simply because they were woven into my story. Now, that's not to say that we should use personal stories to communicate, but rather to illustrate how the ability to understand, follow, and be able to repeat well-told stories is something that's hardwired in our brains. And we can use that to our advantage when crafting data stories as well. So this is similar to what we talked about before, how you generally want to work within the natural construct that time goes from left to right. Using this natural construct of story can help make things easier for our audience. And when things are easy, they don't have to work. They're more likely to pay attention and hopefully have meaningful conversation or act in the way that we want them to act. And the way I teach this has shifted over time and has definitely become more nuanced since I wrote uh, Storytelling with Data, which is one of the reasons I'm working on some new content, which will be available this year. I, I focus now mainly on the narrative arc, right? This idea that you start with a plot. There's tension and this builds in the form of a rising action, reaches a point of climax. There's a falling action, a resolution. For me, in a business setting, the order of the arc is less important, right? We can swap around the pieces as it makes sense depending on the situation. The most important thing is the identification of tension. The tension is what contributes to that rising action and climax. And this is not about making tension up, but rather considering what is the tension that already exists. 
if there weren't tension, I'd argue we don't have anything to communicate about in the first place. And the tension is not what's at stake for us, but rather what is at stake for our audience. Going back to Duarte, who you mentioned before, and she makes this point quite clearly, you aren't the hero in the story. The audience is. Then the resolution becomes how our audience can resolve the tension that we've highlighted. So people who think story is fluff when it comes to data need to get more nuanced in how they're thinking about it. My view is that story used well can help us get our audience's attention, build credibility, and motivate them to act. I think that's a great point to end with. Big thanks to everyone who submitted questions. If you have a question, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. Before we wrap, a couple of updates. The public workshop schedule for the first half of the year has been set. This includes stateside sessions in Charlotte, San Francisco, New York, and Milwaukee. My first trip down under, which I mentioned, in March with sessions in Auckland, Melbourne, Sydney, and European workshops in London, Dublin, Copenhagen, and Zurich. Details and registration can be found at storytellingwithdata.com public workshops. Current Storytelling with Data Challenge is live and runs through January 15th, 2019. This time, I encourage you to try out a tool for visualizing or communicating data that is unfamiliar to you. I think we're all going to learn a ton from this one, and we'll share back a recap post later in the month that includes all examples created and commentary shared. Details at storytellingwithdata.com SWD challenge. Also, a quick teaser for the next episode of the podcast. You'll hear from a number of people whose names you'll recognize about the varied paths that they individually understand took to learn to visualize data. It's shaping up to be a fascinating episode, and I'm excited to soon share it with you. Speaking of the podcast, if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with a friend. With that, be sure to follow at Story with Data on Twitter and Instagram. Also, check out all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.